Thank you, brother. Lead us in worship and those that serve with him and those that take up the offering. I'm so grateful for you all each and every single Sunday morning. So this last week, Greg, I was uh, listening to Dave Ramsey. And, and he made a statement about somebody that had a look on their face like they had been weaned on pickle sauce, on pickle juice. And, he, and I'd never heard that before about somebody that had the face looked like they'd been weaned on pickle juice. Have you ever heard that before? Well, that's what I think of like some football fans in here this morning probably have a little bit of a weaned on pickle juice look on their face, but we love you anyways. So I'm so grateful that uh, you are here this morning. I hope you got a bulletin. I hope you have a Bible, something you can turn on or open up and you will join me in Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. I'm sure that many of you are, and those of you that aren't, you need to be familiar with the name of George Mueller. Now, some of you may not be familiar, and I would encourage you to go home and to learn about George Mueller. You can watch documentaries on Netflix, there's YouTube videos about it, there's books about his life. He was a man that lived towards the latter half of the 1800s. He spent two-thirds of his life in Bristol, England. He was originally from Germany, but he felt like God was calling him to the mission field, and so he actually went from Germany to England, kind of settled in the Bristol area as a missionary to the English people. And while he was there, he was looking for opportunities to serve. He was looking for opportunities to be involved in the work of the Lord, and he was looking around, and he saw an untold number of orphans, children around him. And in those days, they didn't have orphanages that you had set up, children's homes or something like that. It was just the orphans were just out on the street, used to fend for themselves. And so they would find abandoned warehouses. They would find underneath railroad trusses, wherever they could get. And they were all over the place. And he knew there was a need. And so he began to be burdened with a heart that said, you know what? God, may I do something with these orphans? So he began to pray. And God gave him a house. And he began to house orphans. But there was more orphans than he had a house for. So he prayed for another house, and God gave him another house. And he prayed for another house, and God gave him another house. At one point during George Mueller's life, he was housing, they say, as many as 2,000 at one time in the different homes that he had set up. They say, based upon the, the journals and the, the, the history, that as many as 10,000 orphans came through his home during his time. 10,000 orphans that came through his home all because of one man's conviction to follow God. But what we know more about George Mueller is not just his care for the orphans, but his prayer life. You go to George Mueller's journals, you will see that he has recorded over 50, 50, 50,000 specific prayer requests that he said were answered by God. So through the course of his life, he had written down over 50,000 prayer requests that he says God answered in this way. 30,000, three zero, 30,000, he writes in his journal, were answered the same day or the same hour that he prayed them. Just think about this. That is 500 definite answers to prayer each year. That is more than one a day for every single day for 60 years. Through the course of his ministry there at the orphanage, he never solicited 
unsolicited a single dime of funding. He never asked a single person for a penny. And But what he did was he prayed, God, you know I have a need. God, I need this need met. And during the course of George Mueller's time, he brought in today's equivalent of over $500 million because he prayed and he looked for answer to prayer. Now, when I read that about 50,000 prayer requests that were answered, I think, do we ask God that much in prayer? We have been walking through a series about the core values of the church. Back in July, we as a church embraced three core values, and they are to build families, teach the Bible, and to be the church. So we spent the first several weeks looking at what it means to build families. And we were in Genesis 1 through Genesis 3, talking about God has a design and God has a standard and God has a, has a plan. And then we pivoted over to teach the Bible. And we talked about God's authority and God's protection and God's direction out of Psalm 119 and talking about why this matters to us. And this morning, we're going to embark upon what does it mean to be the church. Now, you and I could slice this a hundred different ways. So what we're going to hopefully do is over the course of the next three or four weeks talk about some principles about what it means to be a church. So we've added a tagline with each one of these core values, and the tagline for value number three is to practice kingdom first principles. Now the question comes up, well, what is a kingdom first principle? How do we define what is a kingdom first principle? Well, one of the things we're going to look at every single week is a different aspect or a different principle that we see in scripture that we as a church should be practicing. This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 because I want us to look at the practice of prayer. It's not the only avenue, it's not the only channel that God uses, but it's one of the major channels and avenue that God uses to equip, to support, and to strengthen the church is through the practice of prayer. Now, there is not a single one of us, us, there's not a single one of us in this room that is perfect in our prayer life. So in no way is this directed at you or directed at me or directed to your neighbor or directed to the people in the other section. This is something for us when it comes because we, are see, we see throughout the pages of the New Testament that when people pray, specifically God's people pray, we see the power of God shown. And so if we are going to practice kingdom first principles by being the church, we need to be reminded what it looks like to be a praying church. So here in Acts chapter one, let me remind you, make sure we're all on the same page of the story, if you will. Let me remind you of where we are, we are coming into this story. Acts chapter one and, and starting in verse four or starting in verse six, Jesus gathers up the 11 disciples. Judas had uh, committed suicide. He gathers up the 11 disciples and he gives them the great commission. Matthew chapter 28 is a parallel passage to this. And he comes before him and he says in verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then in a scene that we can't even imagine what it looks like, Christ rises up through the clouds and ascends to heaven and who it is seated at this very moment at the right hand of God. 
So you have the disciples, they are sitting there, they watch Christ go up into the sky, out of sight, and they're sitting there going, what do we do now? Well, the two angels showed up and said, hey, he's coming back, don't worry, just do what he told you to do. So starting there in verse 12, it says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, and, when they were, and where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So what Luke is doing as he is giving us this account here in the Acts of the Apostles, he's giving us the scene. He's setting the stage, if you will, and he said, so here is what is taking place. Christ had ascended. He had given his final words to his disciples. Now he is gone and now they're in this interlude. Christ is gone. The spirit has not, has not yet come and so they all left Mount Olivet, traveled about a half a mile back into Jerusalem. They're in the upper room. You got the 11 core disciples that are there and then it says at the past part of verse 14, the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Luke sets this scene that you have the 11 disciples the women that followed Jesus through his earthly ministry. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 tells us that Jesus had at least four brothers and even some sisters. And so the idea that they are all gathered here in this upper room, but what I want you to consider for these next few moments with me is what we see at the first part of verse 14. An example of how we should model our lives and the ministry of this church. All these, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. It's the example that they give us. Christ had ascended back to the right hand of the Father. They come back into Jerusalem. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They don't know what's going to happen. They're not sure what's going to happen next. But what they do know is we are going to pray. So there, if you have your notes in front of you, I want to point you to three examples that we find in this text and elsewhere in Scripture, three examples of prayer. Just three uh, points that I want to make out of this text here in Acts chapter 1 and 14 this morning. And the first thing I want you to see with me in the text is their posture of prayer. Their posture of prayer. Now, posture is something we all, all, a lot of times think about in our body language. If you're slouched and somebody says, stand up straight. Or if you go to the military and they've got a certain way you want to look. They talk about when you're sitting down that you don't want to be slunched over. You want to be back. Your posture matters. But you realize that you can use the word posture and not just talking about the condition or the formity of your body, but you can also talk about the posture of your heart. You can talk about the posture of your mind. You can talk about the posture of your spirit. You can talk about the posture of your attitude. And when we talk about the posture of prayer, we're talking about how they were coming to the Lord. And so it says in verse 14, all of these with one accord. Now, some of your Bibles may have it worded a little bit differently. The, C, the, the Christian standard talks about being united. United. <laughs> <Whew. laughs> Got close, got close. 
The New American Standards talks about being one mind. The sense of the word there in one accord is to be united with one mind. It gives us this imagery. It gives us this emphasis. It gives us this explanation that you not only had the 11 disciples, you had the other followers. You had the Jesus's family that were there because Joseph, we assume, is already out of the scene. Uh, we assume he's already passed away by this point. And so you have Jesus, his mother, all of his brothers and sisters, the 11 disciples and the other women that follow the Jesus. They are all up there. And the Bible says they were united with one mind. Now that is fascinating. I think that is fascinating. Why? Because how often can you get 15, 20 people in the same room with the same attitude, with the same heart? I mean, no offense to you, but we took 10 of you all and put you in a room and asked you about what is your idea for ministry. You would, 10 of you would come up with 13 different ideas for how to do ministry. That's just human nature. That's just the way that this thing works. Everybody has a different idea. Everybody has a different perspective. Everybody has a different approach. Everybody has a different mentality of what it means. And yet here in the text, they had a one united mind. Be why? Why were they doing that? Because of their posture in prayer. They were not united. They were not united because everybody agreed with them. They were, they were not united because they were getting their way. They were not united because everything was going great in life. They were all together united. Why? Because they knew who they were. Who were they? They were followers of Jesus Christ. They were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. They knew they were children of God. They knew who they were and they knew whose they were. They weren't the governments. They weren't the religious leaders. They were the children of God. And they knew why they were. If you look back up there to verse 8 here in the text, Jesus looks at him and says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They knew who they were. They knew whose they were. And they knew why they were. They were here to be witnesses. There's a certain amount of unification that comes when everybody understands who they are, whose they are, and why they are. Sometimes we come into things in life and everybody has a different identity. Everybody has a different perspective. Everybody has a different approach. Everybody has a different attitude of what it should look like. And yet here in the text, because their attitude of who they knew they were, because of their condition of their hearts, they were come and they were able to be united with one mind in prayer. You may say, well, Spence, that was probably pretty easy for them. You know, they didn't have social media. It's probably pretty easy for them. They probably didn't have phones. You know, it's probably pretty easy for them. They didn't have the newspaper. They didn't have the internet. They're probably pretty easy for them. None of them had a job. They'd just been following Jesus around. Probably pretty easy for them. They'd seen Jesus do all these miracles. Probably pretty easy for them. No, no, no. Let's think about this. It wasn't like they were free from conflict. Even in the midst of conflict, they were united in prayer. Think about what they've gone through. Jesus, who they'd spent three, three and a half years following, gets arrested. They watch him get crucified. It says all the disciples scattered. 
Then after he comes back from the dead, they're like, oh, well, maybe we need to go back and say we're sorry. And they all just kind of reassemble. And then they're like, okay, you see this in your text if you're there in Acts chapter one. They come up to Jesus and they're thinking that Jesus is gonna establish a government. He's gonna establish a military rule. He's gonna establish a new kingdom that's going to usurp this Roman government they couldn't stand. And so they're looking at Jesus and Jesus says, no, nah, I'm not doing any of that. I'm out. Holy Spirit's coming. Hang tight. We're good. And yet they are now in Jerusalem, the same city that the people then were so adamant just a month and a half before that demanded his Christ crucifixion. It's the same city that they had the religious leaders that were continually looking for ways to try to entrap and trick Jesus. It was the same Roman government, the same Pilate that was there that consented to the death of their Messiah. Can you imagine sitting in there wondering, what was that noise outside? Should we leave? Should we go? Well, I think we should just take a vote. I, I think that we should just leave and, 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 and take, a, take a vacation. It'd be a good time for no vacay, wouldn't it? Let's just, let's just get out of town. Let's just lay low. Or, you know, let's just sit here and lick our wounds. Let's just sit here and, and, and strategize. Let's sit here and have a, let's just sit here and think for a while. No, no, no. They, even though they're in the midst of conflict, they still were praying. And sometimes... Conflict can come in our lives and derail us what we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes conflict can come in our lives and keep us from doing what God calls us to do. So notice their posture. With one accord, the text says, all these with one accord. They were united with one mind, even in the midst of conflict, and even in the absence, I put there in your notes, even in the absence of timing. Even in the absence of timing. What do you mean, Spence? Well, if you look back up in the text... If you look back up, Jesus tells them, verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. What is so significant about that? Well, Jesus tells him, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. What you do not see in the text is a description. Five foot 10, Dark hair, square glasses, gray suit. You don't get a description. He will be there at 1130 on Friday morning, so you're looking for him. He says, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Who am I waiting for? You're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Well, how am I going to know when that person shows up? Oh, you'll know it. All of these things are going in place, and yet, what do they do? They go back and they pray. They don't know how long they're going to pray. They just know they're going to pray until the Holy Spirit comes. There was an absence of timing. I'm not the only one. And some of you might be able to relate to this. You know what's one thing to pray for a day or two? And then you start to question, am I praying for the wrong thing? Am I praying for the right thing? Is God going to do something? Is God going to take care of it? Does God even listen to me? We have all these excuses, and the next thing you know, we find ourselves praying for a finite amount of time and not praying until God. I thought about this this morning as I was reviewing this. It's a matter of dependency. You might just jot down in the margin there in the notes, Dependent. 
What the people were showing, that the, the, the demonstration, if you're gonna boil it down to one word, yeah, you can talk about the posture of prayer, but you're also talking about they were a dependent people. And to think about this, let me take you back to the Old Testament. And so you got Moses and he's bringing the, the, the Jewish people out of the Egyptian bondage and he's taking them down to Mount Sinai where they will see the law and then they're moving on to the promised land. But on the way, what happens? You have the people and they're grumbling. I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I want water. And then they were grumbling, I'm hungry, I want bread, I want bread. And God provides bread, God provides water. And then it's, oh no, I'm mad, I want meat, I want meat, and God provides the quail. Over and over again, when they had a need, God met the need. And yet when you go back and you read it, they're constantly complaining about, you know what, we don't have this. In Egypt, we had this, but we don't have it here. We wish we were back in Egypt, because if we were back in Egypt, we would have it. And this is how this hit me. In Egypt, they were a slave. And in Egypt, they were in bondage. And yeah, the Egyptians, and yeah, Pharaoh, and Yoza are in charge. Yeah, they gave them the things that they needed. But not for free. Because, because they were slaves, then they would give them what they needed. And as God brings them out, what God is trying to show them is, is when you're dependent upon me, it's a one-way deal. I give to you because of who I am. I don't give to you because of who you are. And see, the slaves, or sorry, the Jewish people, they have been used to that slave-master relationship. And so it's all a matter of what I get for what I am. So I work for you, and you provide me food. I do what I'm supposed to do for you. You provide me the things that I enjoy. And yet God is saying, no, 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 no. When you're dependent upon me, you will see me do things, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. And, and I thought to myself, wonder how many people here this morning are in Egypt. You're a slave to this world. You're a slave to money. You're a slave to responsibilities. You're a slave to people's opinions. You're a slave to the approval from those around you. You are a slave and you have to keep doing this and you're going, you know what? I understand where I'm at. I am in bondage. And yet God is saying, will you just be dependent upon me? I think about Philippians chapter four and verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to whose riches? His. His riches. So you get right here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14 and you see a people that had a posture of prayer because they were dependent upon God. And too many times we don't find ourselves dependent upon God because we're more dependent upon this world. I'm not dependent upon this world. Just wait till your electricity goes off and then we'll talk again. So let's talk about, let's talk about another example that we see here. Verse 14, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. I want you to see not only the posture of prayer, but I also want you to see their practice of prayer. Their practice of prayer. The last part of that phrase that I said, they were devoting with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. That idea of devoting, if you're to look it up in the original language, has some different ways that you could define that. One of them would be a continual supplication. I think in some of the translations, it talks about continual. They were doing things continually. It's just an idea that you weren't just devoted to one prayer time for five minutes, or you weren't just devoted to prayer for 30 minutes. You were devoted to prayer with every part 
of your life. They were petitioning God. They were entreating God. They were making requests to God. They were continually devoted, not just occasional, not just coincidental, not just for a short time in their lives. There was a continual supplication that was going on. But there's another definition that I found of the word that I thought was really cool. And it defined this word as keeping close company. See, the idea when you're being devoted, especially in your prayer time, when you're being devoted to the things of God, it's, it puts it in this sense of that you're gonna keep close company. Like you're going to stay right with them. You're going to stick with them. You're going to shadow them. Everywhere they go, you go. Every time they turn, you turn. Every time they stand up, you stand up. Every time they sit down, you sit down. It's the idea that when it comes to our prayer life and when it comes to our obedience and our faithfulness to God, it should be as though that we are keeping close company with God. And yet, How many times do we practice more closeness with our phones than we do our Bible? How many times do we practice more closeness with this world than when we do with the Spirit? So you see this practice. Notice it says devoting themselves to what? Not devoting themselves to another, not devoting themselves to their work, not devoting themselves to cooking, not devoting themselves to all the things this world may say is important. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And not only that, but the idea of devoting is that they were going to pray and they did pray until God moved. They prayed until God did something so easy it can be in our prayer lives. That we say, God, I've got 30 minutes, I'm going to pray. And at the end of this 30 minutes, I'm done. You got your 30 minutes, I'm going to go out about my life. And I wonder whose time are we working off of? I'll get around the family and we'll be doing something, we'll be traveling or something, and I'll always tell them, this is the official timepiece. And as they get older and they end more than these teenage years, I already know. Daddy, oh, my phone was slow. Oh, daddy, my watch was slow. That's not why I'm on time. And I'm, we're going to have this conversation. You do not have the official timepiece in the McConnell family. This is the official timepiece of the McConnell family. And yet, when it comes to God, whose time is it? See, we come to God and we say, God, you know what I'm willing to pray, but I only got 30 minutes, and so you better make it fast. Or God, I'll be willing to pray, but you know that it's just going to be one morning, one hour on a Sunday morning, and that's it. God, I'm willing to pray, but God, I'm going to tell you how long I'm going to pray. I'm going to tell you when I'm done praying, and I'm going to tell you what I expect you to do in the time that I'm giving you. And he says, they were devoting themselves to prayer. They were going to pray until God moved. Why? Because they were desperate. Because they were desperate. Not only were they dependent upon the work of God in their lives, but they were desperate for the things of God in their lives. See, we sometimes think of today as desperation as being a very negative thing. And when you get to the point that you're desperate, you just lost and you're at the bottom of the bottom and it couldn't get any worse. Like some of them OU fans in the third quarter yesterday, they just get, they just get, they just get desperate. My time's coming. They just, they just get desperate, right? They just get desperate. Story is told that George Mueller had 300 orphans in the house. They get up in the morning and they don't have any food. No milk, no bread, no way to feed them. 
The people, the other adults in the house, they come to George Mueller and they say, George, what are we going to do? He says, make sure they're dressed, make sure they're ready for the day, and sit them at the table. God will provide. Quite audacious. So what did they do? The adults like, okay, Mr. Mueller, whatever you want to do. And they had all the children sitting there, and he comes in there, and he looks at the children. The children are looking at him saying, we're hungry. Let's go. Let's get this on. He has no idea what to do, so he thinks... Well, not thinks, I shouldn't make light of it. So he says, let's pray. He prays for God to provide. And as the story goes, and I'm not making this up, as the story goes, as soon as he says amen, there's a knock at the door. Opens the door, and there is the local baker. And he says, Mr. Mueller, last night I had this thought in my head that you may not have enough bread to feed these youngins, and so I got up way early this morning, and I have been making bread all morning. Could you use the bread? Yes, we could. They bring the bread in. As he is getting the bread positioned, there's another knock at the door. He opens that door, and now it's the milkman, and the milkman's cart has broken down in front of the orphanage, and he says, there is no way by the time I fix this cart to make my deliveries that the, bread will be, that the milk will still be any good. Could you use this milk? Because he prayed, and because he was desperate, trusting in God. So you see not just their posture of prayer, you see not just their practice of prayer, but then let's do a little, let's do a little examination into their purpose of prayer. So there in the text in verse 14, it says all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. It gives us this idea of what the posture of their heart was, what the practice of their life was. But then for me, the way that I come into it, when I come to a text like this, I come and I say, why? What was the purpose? What are they doing? Do they know what they're doing? What is the reason? What is the why behind what they're doing? So you may come to verse 14 and say, well, that's great, Spence. But you know, it's hard to be motivated when you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. So what is the purpose of prayer? Doesn't God know everything anyways? Sure. Does it really matter what I pray for? You think God's just sitting up there waiting for Spence to pray to go, oh yeah, that's a good idea, Spence. Or you think God's sitting up there waiting to decide what to do until I pray about it? You know, sometimes we can excuse away our lack of obedience and faithfulness to God by minimizing the word of God. So I, I pulled this all out of the Gospel of Luke. So turn, turn, hold your finger there. You see this there in your notes. I've got the scripture, the references mentioned there. But just turn back in your Bible. Turn back to Luke chapter 11. Now, I told you, you can find other parallel passages of this, both in Matthew and Mark. So this is not the only place. So don't think I went and found some obscure verse and going to say, hey, this is it. You can find this in both. But for the sake of time, go back to Luke chapter 11 and verse Let's look at the purpose of their prayer. So all these people that you see in Acts chapter 1, the majority of these people were present in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. Verse 2, And he said to them, When you pray. And notice the way that Jesus puts that there is not if, when. You see the disciples there in the upper room there in Acts chapter 1, they are praying because it's a matter of obedience. Christ prayed. Christ taught his followers how to pray. 
God's word expects that we will pray. And so when we come to pray, why are we praying? We're praying because it is a matter of obedience. Now, grateful for me and maybe for you, he doesn't say, set a minimum, oh, you got to pray so many minutes a day, or you got to pray so many days. It's the idea of as often as you feel a need, pray, pray. Pray to God, but it's a matter of obedience. Then you go from there. Go to Luke chapter 22. Why do we pray? Why do we as a church pray? Well, first of all, we pray for obedience. Pray because of obedience. But then also Luke chapter 22 and verse 40. Notice what happens now. They just finished the upper room having the Passover together. They are headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane is where Judas would bring the Roman soldiers and they would arrest Jesus. Then they would haul him off to Caiaphas' house. He would live there and he would go to Pilate. He would go to Herod. He'd go back to Pilate. And then he would die on a cross the next day. But when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, listen to what Jesus tells. The same 11 that were in Acts chapter 1 are the same 11 that are here in verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Spence, why, why should we pray? Well, we pray because it's obedience. And we pray because it's protection. Do you realize that you and I are continually surrounded by all kinds of desires, all kinds of temptations? You and I are constantly put, pushed and pulled in so many different directions. And we start asking the question of, well, what is right? What is wrong? What should I do? Oh my gracious, I just have too many choices and too many th people want too many things in my time. And he says, we should be praying and saying, God, I know that my flesh is weak. Oh God, I know that I am tempted and prone to err. And God, I know that I'm in the midst of all kinds of attacks on my spirit, but God, I need your protection. But there's another one, Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> Luke chapter 23. Fast forward in the story a little bit. They've stretched Jesus out upon the cross and they set the cross up for the world to see. And listen to what he says. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You ever thought about that? He's been arrested, he's been beaten. He's been accused. He's been lied about. He is now stripped naked in agony and suffering, and he's on the cross. And he doesn't say, God, get him. He doesn't say, God, help me. He doesn't say, God, I don't deserve this. He doesn't say, God, take care of this. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They were praying for compassion, for compassion. You may look at it differently. You may, see, you may see a different angle to that. But when Jesus is on the cross, when he's looking down upon him, he has compassion. He has compassion because he knows 
He knows the condition of their souls. He knows the condition of their hearts. And yes, he knows that they are crucifying him. Yes, he knows that they are mistreating him. But the biggest problem before him is not of what they are doing to him. It's where they're going to spend an eternity. And church, sometimes we can become a prayerless church. And when we become a prayerless church, we become a calloused church. And when we become a calloused church, we become a cold church. And when we become a cold church, we become the frozen chosen instead of the church that God has called us to be. And it becomes when we start having, we stop having compassion for people. So the purpose of their prayer when you go to Acts chapter 1 is they were praying, they were devoted, they were united in one mind, in one accord. They were devoted to the practice of prayer. And the purpose of their prayer is not saying, you don't see anywhere where they say, oh God, get the Romans, get those mean guys. You don't see them go and say, go, God, get those religious leaders. They're sitting there praying saying, God, use us to reach people. I realize that some of you in this room, you got people that you'd love to see taken out. I take this newsletter. Oh, I know, Miss Carol, you may not, but I, sometimes people do. I, I take this newsletter every morning, this email. And on Sunday mornings, there's a, they always do this interview with somebody that they, thinks, that they say is no, has notoriety, and I've never heard of them before. But in this email, they will, in this newsletter, in this interview, they will ask the question, name one person that is fictional that you wished were real, and name one person that is real that you wish was fictional. And it always usually turns to politics, especially on the ones. And it's this idea that we have the people we don't like and the people that we don't think should get a second chance. We have the people that we wish that God would get them. We have the people that we don't care if we look at them again. And I wonder how many times do we have the compassion of Christ? So the purpose of our prayers is not just obedience or for protection, it's compassion. See, they were devoted, they were desperate, or they were, sorry, they were dependent, they were desperate, and they were devoted. They said, we're gonna pray for the things that Jesus prayed for. We're gonna pray for the things that was on the heart of Jesus. We're gonna pray for the things that God has called us to pray for. I understand that you may say, well, you don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know what I'm going through. Yes, but you know what? When we look at the example of Jesus and we look at the examples of the disciples, we see people that were devoted to the kingdom of God. They were devoted to the plan and the purpose and the will of God. Yes, life kept pulling them in a thousand different directions and yet they were still devoted to God. I think about it like this. I saw this example, I was told this example a long time ago, but you think about it like this. It's just, a, it's just a regular old rubber band, right? Your life is just like a little bitty old rubber band, but you know what life will do? Life has a tendency to stretch you. Life has a tendency to twist you around and around and around. Life has a tendency to manipulate you and get you all discombobulated. And yet when all of those things go and you go back to what you were, who are you? Yes, your job will pull you. Yes, your family will stretch you to the breaking point. And yet the things that you are truly devoted to will be what it is that you return to when you go back to who you are. You see, I'm not asking that you have to give up every day of your life. I'm not saying that it's a matter of legalism, attendance, or property, or whatever. They, but it's like the condition of your mind. What are you dependent on? What are you desperate for? What are you devoted to? You get these disciples, 
the family of Jesus, and they were all sitting there, and they were praying. They were praying as a matter of posture. They were praying as a matter of practice. They were praying as a matter of purpose. So how do we do this? Okay, preacher, so you're saying I need to be, I need to be a, a, a prayerful Christian. Yes, you do. We need to be a praying church. Yes, we do. Well, how do we do that? Well, something that I'm sure that many of you are familiar with, but I put down there at the bottom of your notes, just a little acrostic. Just a little acrostic. It spells A-C-T-S. It's the word acts. If you haven't heard of that word before, it's actually where we've been at this morning. It's the word acts. And he just kind of gives us an idea. Okay, so if I am not used to praying, if I'm not comfortable praying, how do I do this? Well, if you just remember this, this acronym, and then when you come to your time of prayer, whether it is five seconds, five minutes, or five hours, just think about this as you come and use this as a guide, as an outline to your time in prayer. I'm almost out of time, so let's go through this quickly. A is for adoration. A is for adoration. Why do we come start with adoration? Because adoration is when we give God glory. God, you are good. God, you are merciful. God, you are great. God, you are loving. All of these things, we're just looking to God and we are giving glory to God. Why give it to God? Because there's no one more worthy of your adoration. Not a grandkid, not a possession, God. So we start, we start. Adoration. A, we start giving glory to God. C is confession. We come to God and we say, God, this is where I've sinned. This is where I have fallen short. This is where I've rebelled against you. This is where in my stubbornness and in my pride and my arrogance, I have violated your word. Use biblical words to talk about biblical things. Not, well, you know, I slipped or so-and-so's fault. I sinned. I transgressed your word. I rebelled against you. You confess your sins to God. T, thanksgiving. What is the difference in thanksgiving and adoration? Because adoration, you're coming and you're saying, God, you are all of these things, and I acknowledge it and I proclaim it. T is thanksgiving when you're saying, God, thank you for all the things you've given me. Thank you for the blessings of a church family. Thank you for the opportunity to go to church. Thank you for the opportunity to have a job to provide for my family. Thank you for this roof that is over my head. Thank you for the food that is in my belly. Thank you for the shoes that are on my feet. It's Thanksgiving. And then S is supplication. It is the S part that we come to the supplication. What is supplication? It is when you come and you submit your request to God. God, you know what? There's this little child that is in the hospital and needs some help. God, would you please look upon this family? Oh God, there's these people over here and they're at home and they're in sick. God, would you please look upon this family? God, I got this neighbor. I got this neighbor that I don't know is whether they're lost or whether they're saved. God, would you please save them? And at the very part of your notes, there's three more questions. Some of you forgot they were even there, didn't you? I am praying for blank to be saved. I am praying for blank to repent. I invited blank to church today. It's this idea that you can make this part of your time of supplication. God, would you please get a hold of I can't say Jerry, no. His life. God, would you please get a hold of her life? God, would you please draw them back to you? God, show me who I can talk to that I have not talked to before and invite them to church. And we make this time of our prayer before God. Is that exhaustive? That is not exhaustive. But it's a start. 
I realize that some of you are going to say, well, Spence, I've tried to pray before. I've tried to do these things in prayer before. But you know what? I get 30 seconds in, and I'm just squirreling out. You know what squirreling out means? You're sitting there, and you're like, oh, what's going on over here? Oh, what's going on over there? Ding, ding, ding. Your phone's going off, and all of a sudden, your mind's wandering, and you're daydreaming, and you're going 1,000 miles in 1,000 different directions. And you're like, well, just forget it. I, I'm wasting my time. Or some of you will look at me and go, Spence, I've tried to pray, but I can't stay focused and pray. I, I can't do it. There's no hope for me. Listen to what George Mueller wrote. I often spent a quarter of an hour, that's 15 minutes, or half an hour, that's 30 minutes, or even an hour on my knees before being conscious to myself of having derived comfort, encouragement, humbling of soul, etc. And often having after often after having suffered much from wondering of mine for the first 10 minutes or quarter of an hour or even half an hour, only then really begin to pray. Listen, what, did you hear just what he said? He said, you know, I sat down there and I had the same issue. My mind was wondering. And sometimes I would sit there for 15 minutes and my mind's still going. Sometimes I would sit there for, for 30 minutes and my mind is still wondering. Sometimes I would spend an hour before I ever really felt like I got focused in on my time in prayer. So Mueller would sometimes flounder for a half an hour to an hour trying to pray, fighting to focus his thought and kindle feelings for prayer in his heart. Only after that long, determined struggle would he finally enter into a sense of communion with God. You may say, Spence, you mean I got to spend an hour just before I ever start to pray? I don't have that much time. You're not desperate enough. Well, Spence, if God wants me to pray, he can just clear all my mind and he can just make it simply so I can just come in and boom, I can just be out the door. You're not dependent enough. Well, Spence, I think that there should be, I, I, I don't think that God should have a rig like this. And, and Spence, I, I don't like the idea of, of setting aside an hour or two hours just to pray for God. You know, Spence, that, that's just not fair. You're not devoted enough. When we get dependent, we get desperate, and we get devoted, we might start seeing some things like in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27, and 28. Maybe we see some things start happening. And God's people start getting desperate and dependent and devoted. So where are you at in your prayer life? Would you bow your heads with me?